Would you turn with me to the first chapter of James? James chapter 1. Charles Williams, who was C.S. Lewis's friend, was uh, fond of comparing the, the human race to uh, a number of people in a large building, half of whom, he said, uh, considered the building to be a grand hotel and the other half a prison. He said, uh, in his opinion, the people who thought of the, of the world, the world we live in, as a, as a luxury hotel were always bound to be disillusioned and, and disappointed and, and unhappy because their expectations were totally unrealistic. On the other hand, he said, those who looked at, uh, at life as a place of discipline and where there are limitations and the rules are rather strict, they, in the end, turn out to be much happier because they're realistic about their, uh, about their expectations. He said, for example, when your teenage children come to you and, and say they're unhappy, the only appropriate response is to say, of course you're unhappy. What, what else would you expect to be but unhappy? That's, uh, that's just the way things are. And uh, discovering that life is difficult during the teenagers, according to Williams, makes life much easier. I think that's what James is telling us. We, we can expect life to be difficult. Things will, from time to time, be hard. It's not that life is uniformly grim and, and, uh, and harsh. It's that uh, there will be times of difficulty. James says, count it all joy when... You fall into uh, adversity. Not, uh, not if, but when. We can expect things to be hard from time to time. And when hard circumstances strike us, James says, count it all joy. Now remember from last week, joy is not uh, mere mirth or merriment. It's a, it's a sense of contentment. It's a profound sense of, of well-being. To use the pop psychological term, it's it's saying, I'm okay. Everything is all right. Things are under control. I can be at peace and restful. Because I know that, that the whole process has meaning. That pain has a, has a purpose. It's meaningful. It's designed to make something, something wonderful out of us. Something noble and majestic. God has in mind the perfection of our character. He wants to make us real men and real women. And uh, in order to produce that product, hard circumstances are, are essential. And so James says, when the, when the times get tough, rejoice. Be thankful. Be content. Because there's a process at work that uh, will yield a, a noble project, a noble, a noble product. We have no, no idea of the, of the wonderful thing that God intends to make out of us. But uh, the, make, the way to make it work, James says, is to endure. Now, endurance, as we saw, is not merely resignation. It's not gritting your teeth and setting your jaw and, and determining that you're going to tough it out no matter what. That may be stoic, but it's not, uh, it's not Christian. Endurance means obedience. Taking God at his word, doing his will, no matter what it costs. Sticking with your marriage, no matter how much pain it's going to cost you. Refusing to give way to the, uh, to the morality of your, 
your office or your classroom, your campus, refusing to give up your biblical uh, morality or your modesty. It's uh, refusing to give in to unethical business practices, even though you may you know it may cost you. Or uh, refusing to tell a lie, even though you know that if you tell the truth, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt. It's going to be painful. You'll have to pay the consequences uh, for the truth. It's a mere matter of obedience, taking God at his word, doing his will, no matter what it, what it costs. That's what endurance is. And James says if we, if we endure, then the process works. We grow. We mature. We become what James calls mature and complete. We're not only mature in some parts we, uh, and immature in other parts, we become mature in all of our, uh, of our humanity, all of our personality. We grow up. And that's the goal. Now, there are times, as Gene points out, that uh, we feel we don't have the resources to act in that way. And uh, that's why James says in verse 5, If anyone lacks wisdom, if you lack the character to endure uh, against some counter-influence, some, some pressure, ask, he says, ask of God who gives to all men generously. He longs to give. He doesn't hold anything back. He never holds out on us. He wants to give everything that we need to, uh, to behave the way we ought to, to behave in a given situation. He gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given. But, uh, as James says, we have to ask in faith without doubting. That is, we can't be uncertain about whether or not we want God's will. We have to be willing to do what God wants, God's way. But uh, if we ask with that abandoned heart and a willingness to obey, no matter what the cost, he'll give. That's the power that we have to... uh, to face any, any set of circumstances that come our way. Now, what follows in, in verses 9 through 12 is the perspective that we ought to maintain on our circumstances. James writes, Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a, with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its, uh, its appearance is destroyed. So the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. On the other hand, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You'll notice in the New American Standard uh, translation that uh, verse 12 uh, is placed in the paragraph uh, that follows verses 12 through 18. But for myself, I think it, it belongs in the prior section with verses 9 through 11. The contrast is between the man who withers away and the man who endures. You'll notice what James is doing. He gives us an entirely uh, new and different perspective on life. He turns traditional values upside down. He, he says the rich man is is poverty-stricken, and the poor man is wealthy. When you're stripped of your wealth, he says you need to concentrate on your true wealth, the resources that, that you have in Christ, your high position before him. If you're wealthy, don't concentrate on your wealth, don't count on it, don't trust it, 
don't believe in it, but uh, rather concentrate on your, your humble and low position, your neediness, your, your weakness. That's what you ought to focus on. The poor man, he says, is very rich. The humble man is, is very poor. And his poverty consists of the fact that his money doesn't matter. It won't buy the things that really matter. It won't buy the love of someone that, that he desperately, whose love he desperately wants. It won't buy health for his children. It won't buy health for himself. It might extend his life a bit if he has a great deal of money. But in the long run, it, it won't really add anything to life. We have to distinguish between what is permanent and what is passing. That's what James says. Because the rich man with all of his money will wither away like grass. One of these days he will die. That's James' point. That's one of the hard facts of, of life, that at the end of life is death. No one escapes. And you can't take your money with you. Unlike the man who was buried in his gold Cadillac and as he was lowered into the ground, someone said, man, that is living. <laughs> but it's not. And we know it isn't. You remember Mr. Natural of Keep On Trucking fame? Uh, one of the best ways to keep up with the counterculture movement back in the in the 70s was to read, uh, read Mr. Natural, and there was one segment where he was standing talking to a young man who was looking at a young lady with a, a very, very small bikini on, and he said to Mr. Natural, where will it end, Mr. Natural? And Mr. Natural says, in the grave, my boy, in the grave. Like Jesus said, the, the sons of, of this age are sometimes wiser than the sons of light. They get it straight. One of my favorite stories concerns, uh, and I've told this story to the men on Wednesday morning, concerns a man who found a genie in a bottle, and uh, he was given the three wishes, but he asked for only one. He asked for a local paper one year hence. Very astute move. He looked at the market page. And with that kind of inside information, uh, he planned to make a killing in the market. But as he was looking down through the uh, stock reports, his eye happened to fall on his picture on the opposite page which accompanied his obituary. That puts things in focus. And that's what James is saying. You, you can't take it with you. Wealth doesn't matter. If you want to know what God thinks of our wealth, then uh, look at the description of heaven in the book of Revelation where its streets are paved with gold. I think it's a symbol. I, I think what what John is, is shown is God's appraisal of, of the value of gold. We place great value in it here. Our Lord uses it for asphalt over there. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. It won't buy you happiness and it won't buy you eternal life. It's good to be used. As Paul says, use the world without abusing it. Use it. But don't depend on it. There's nothing wrong with making money. Everyone has to make money. There's nothing wrong with investing wisely. But, but that's, we have to realize that's not the ultimate value. That's not our real worth. Our real worth consists in the character that we acquire in, in this life. And that's why James says, 
Blessed is the man who endures, he obeys through the hard times. Whether he's poverty-stricken or wealthy, it doesn't make any difference if he obeys. One of these days he'll stand before the Lord and he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to all those who love him. Uh, Paul is, or James is thinking of, the, uh, of a, the Greek and Roman racetracks, the Olympian Games, the Isthmian Games, the, the athletic events for which the victor received a, a crown of laurel uh, leaves. Didn't amount to much. It was a, it was a sign of, of having won. What James is saying is that, that it's not the man who acquires the most toys in this life and dies who wins, despite what the t-shirt says. It's the man who acquires the most character. That's what you take with you. The only thing you take with you is the godlike character that you've acquired in this world and, and the people that you have won to Christ and caused to grow up in that relationship. And that's the only thing that matters. Nothing else matters. And the older I get, the more convinced I've, I, I've become that James is right. Nothing else matters. As C.S. Lewis put it, there is, in the end, no earthly joy. There are surprises along the way, little happy things that happen to us, serendipities that, that God gives us from time to time, so that life isn't, isn't really grim. But in the end, there is no earthly joy. The only ultimate joy comes from what God is doing in us and through us. My mother used to have a plaque on the wall that said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I don't think I believed that when I was a kid growing up, but I do now. I do now. Nothing else matters. That's why James says, Happy is the man. Oh, the happiness of the man who endures to the end. Because when he stands before the Lord, he'll receive that well done. He'll get his approval. He'll receive the honor that comes from having won in life. The uh, word that James uses here for approved is a word that's, that archaeologists find on the bottom of jug, jugs all over the, the uh, Near Eastern world. They dig up these clay pots and they find inscribed on the bottom the Greek word dokimos. It's, it's somewhat like our uh, underwriter li uh, under, underwriter's laboratory uh, seal of approval or good housekeeping seal of approval or whatever. Whenever a, uh, uh, whenever a pot was shaped and fired and, and passed the test, it didn't crack, they would, they would scribe on the bottom, dokimos, approved. And that's the word that James uses here. A character that's, that's gone through the fire and it's been approved and hardened and toughened and prepared for life so that, that you're able to cope with anything. And one of these days we'll stand before the Lord and perhaps life has been very, very hard. Your marriage has been tough. Your children have been rebellious. You've spent much of your time in sickness. And you look back and you say, it's all worth it. Every bit of it. As Paul could say, that these light momentary afflictions are working for us an exceeding weight of glory. That's the perspective that James says we, uh, we must maintain. Now in verses 13 through 18, he takes up another theme, a related theme. Not only ought we to have a proper perspective on our circumstances, we ought to have the right perspective on God. We have to know who God is and what he's like, because the closer we get to God, the more like him we are. And if we don't understand what God is like, we're likely to get off course. 
So we need to understand his character. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. This, uh, by the way, is the same word that's used in, in verse 2 for trials. And in, again, as, as I said yesterday, I think the word, the, the larger meaning for this term is simply assaults of evil. Whether we're talking about internal temptation or external adversity, the meaning is the same. It's an assault of evil upon us from some direction. James says, when someone is assaulted by evil, don't say God is doing it. For God cannot be tempted by evil, assailed by, by evil influences, and he himself does not tempt anyone. In other words, he can't be overcome by evil so that he acts in evil ways. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own passions, is the word most translations have lust, and our English word always has sexual implications, but the, the, the term behind this, uh, this word simply means uh, a strong desire, an inordinate passion. Uh, it's a neutral word. It doesn't imply immorality, just a strong drive in some direction. We're carried away, he says, and enticed by our own passions. Then when passion has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, boredom, desperation, Disillusionment, depression, fear, emptiness. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, the source of lights, the origin of light in the world, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The word for variation here means systematic uh, change. It was used for... uh, the, the movement of stars, the uh, revolutions of uh, the planets, uh, alternation of the seasons. It was, it's used in one ancient text for the set of a saw with the teeth in regular, uh, re- regularly alternating. Referring to the alternations of light and darkness in the world, it says, God really is not like the sun in that there are times of darkness, 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness. He's pure light. He's always shining on us. And with him there is no shifting shadow. The word was used for eclipses or the shadowing of a sun. There's, there's never a shadow that crosses God's face. His, the, the light from God is never eclipsed. He's always pure, unadulterated, good. Never evil. Uh, someone asked Jesus once uh, a question and called him good teacher. And he said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. He wasn't disclaiming deity. He wasn't saying, I'm not God. He, he's saying he was testing this man's concept of goodness. We tend to throw that term around and use it in a relative fashion. What Jesus is saying is if someone is good, they're good. They're, they're not good and bad. They're good. And God is good. And, and, that, and that's what James is saying. He is utterly, wholly, purely good. He's never evil. Never, there's never any shadow that crosses his face. It's pure light. And the proof of that is in the exercise of his will. He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his, his creatures. The first fruits was uh, a, a, an offering to God that was the 10% off the top. And it was holy to God. It was special. And James says the proof that God is good is our salvation. He brought us forth by the word of truth. We were regenerated by the word of God. We were brought to life by the seed that was implanted in our hearts. 
And God's intention in, in bringing us into, into his world is to, is to make us uh, special among all the rest of creation, to make us holy. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans 8 when he says everything works together for the good. He doesn't say everything is good necessarily that happens to us, but everything works together for good. For those whom he called, he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he justified. Those whom he justified, he he glorified. In other words, there's a process at work that ends in glory. God's intention for every one of us is that we'll be full of, of his character, have have the beauty of holiness. I don't know if you picked up that phrase when the praise hymn was singing, but it struck me again, that, that phrase, the, the beauty of holiness. The world talks about the holiness of beauty, and, and the scriptures talk about the beauty of holiness. What God wants for you and me is, is, is his character, his winsomeness, the majesty of, of, of his, uh, his life and his character. And James says that's one of the proofs of God's goodness is the salvation that he gave us and the ultimate purpose for which he, he saved us. So don't, he says, don't ever say that, that God is evil or that God is behind your, your failure or that God is the source of these terrible things that, that have happened to you. He's not. He's not. We all have a tendency to blame someone for our problems or something goes all the way back to the fall. When, when Adam had to face the Lord after his sin, uh, you know what he said. She did it. That the woman, she did it. And furthermore, you, you gave her to me, so you did it. That, that's always our tendency. Blame God. We don't like to accept responsibility for our actions. Um... We lash out at God. We get bitter. And uh, we, we put all the blame on him. Uh, we just don't want to accept the responsibility for our own actions. It's far better to put it on, on someone else. We do that to our kids, you know. I, I say to my kids, you're driving me crazy. And what I'm doing is making neurotics out of them because they think they're to blame for my craziness. But James says, no, the, the problem is you, as uh, Chuck Swindoll said last week, uh, as Pogo put it, we have met the enemy and he is us. We, we're, we're the enemy. We're the, we're the problem. James says it's your passions, it's your desires. You know what happens? Circumstances turn adverse and, and we, we, we don't like that. We want to be left at peace. We want our own privacy and our right to pursue our lives on our own and we don't want to be circumscribed and frustrated and pressured in this way and, and uh, we get restless and discontent. We don't want to be married or we don't want to be unmarried or we don't want these children or we want children or we want more money or we don't want the money we have or we want a new house or a new car or more clothes or a new sofa or, you know, and the list just goes on. The more we get, the more we want. Because we feel that the, the problem is we don't have enough things and our desires, our passions drive us on and on. That's where all discontent comes from. We're, not, we're just not content with what we have. Pascal said that all the ills of the world can be blamed on one, one thing, and that is a man cannot remain at peace in his own room by himself. 
you know, we've got to be distracted or we have to have some, some toy that will give us some, uh, some little bit of satisfaction. James says, that's the problem. It's our passion. It's our desire for something more. And, and that passion drives us to do sinful, inappropriate things. He uses an analogy of conception and gestation and birth. He says, when the passion has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it, it brings forth death. And we wake up in the morning all moody and bummed out and mad because things haven't gone our way and we rain on everybody in the family and grump around the house and go down to the office and ruin their day. And <laughs> James says, don't be deceived. You know, I, I, as we saw from Job last week, I really don't know why God does the things that he does or permits Satan to get through the hedge and, and afflict us. I don't understand that. But I know that God is good, and I know that he has in mind a, a good product, and I can trust him and rest him, and though I, you know, we may not have, and I, I'm just, you know, I get, I get frustrated and discontented and angry at God too, but we have to stop and think and remind ourselves that he's good, and our circumstances are the circumstances that God has planned and prepared for us, and we can trust him. I uh, just this last week read something from Vance Havner's book, Though I Walk Through the Valley, written after uh, his wife's tragic death. He, he writes, Whoever thinks he has the ways of God conveniently tabulated, analyzed, and correlated with convenient glib answers to ease questions from aching hearts has not been for long in this maze of mystery we call life and death. God has no stereotyped ways of doing what he does, he delivered Peter from prison, but left John the Baptist in a dungeon to die. At this writing, I never knew less how to explain the ways of providence, but I never had more confidence in my God. I accept whatever he does, however he does it. That's where we have to rest it, our hearts. Our circumstances may not be good, but we know God is good. We don't know why he does what he does, why he left John the Baptist in, in prison, and why he delivered Peter, why he, at the end of Paul's life, everyone in Asia turned against him and, and Nero beheaded him. We, we don't know why those in Smyrna who were suffering were told that they could simply expect more suffering. We don't know why. But we know that behind it all is a loving God and everything that happens to us is screened through that love. And that he's going to work in our lives to produce the ultimate good, which is growth in character, mature in Christ-likeness. And he will give us the strength to endure, that is to obey, no matter what it costs. Now let's read verses 19 through uh, 25. This you know, my beloved brethren... Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This uh, paragraph is related to the paragraph above. He's been talking about regeneration. It comes through the word of truth. Now he says the thing to do is to listen to that word of truth. Be quick to hear rather than get angry. The natural response to, to adverse circumstances is to get mad, to get angry, to lash out at God, to cry and moan and and uh, complain, and, and James says, be, be slow to speak, be slow to anger, don't be defensive, be quick to hear, listen to the word. What does the word have to say to you in, in 
in times of discomfort. For he says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Our defensiveness does not permit God to make us righteous. This, this goal, this good intention that God has for us to make us like himself in character, it doesn't work if, if we're keeping God at arm's length, if we're defensive and hostile and angry at God and unwilling to listen to what the word says, if we won't submit ourselves to the mighty hand of God, as Peter says, then he can't exalt us. Therefore, he says, put aside all filthiness. Brian Fisher pointed out to me this past week that that's the Greek word for earwax. <clears throat> Putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. I'm sure that James is thinking of Jesus' parable of the, of the sower and the seed, the sower that's implanted in the soil and begins to grow. And he says, not, uh, not only should we hear the word, but receive it. Embrace it. Accept it as God's word for, for you and for me. And in verse 22, keep on proving yourselves to be doers of the word. Not only hear it and receive it, but do it. Choose to act on the basis of, of the word, knowing that you have all of God's power available to do it. You have an indwelling Christ who never asks us to do anything for which we are not uh, abundantly supplied with his strength. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself, he's off, James says. He glances at the mirror and, and he's gone. He has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. I always think of my kids when I read that verse. Tell them to go wash up for dinner and they take a quick look in the mirror and they come back to the table with dirt from here up and smudges on their face because they just took a quick look. That's a quick look. That's all. They didn't really look. And we say, go back. Did you wash your face? Yeah. Well, go back and look. It's still dirty. James says, don't be like that. But uh, in verse 25, look intently. The, the word implies sustained study. It's the word that w that's used in the Gospels for the incident where the apostles run to the tomb and they bend over and look into the, into the tomb to see if the body is there. Look intently. Study intently. Scrutinize the word. Let, let the word expose us for what we really are. The word is like the little boy in the emperor's new clothes. You know, it, it, it strips us of our illusions. Shows us what we really are. Reveals us for, for what we are. James says, look, look into the word. Let it do its work. And uh, he describes it here as the perfect law. I think here he's talking about the writings of the apostles in the New Testament, the new covenant that was, that was promised, the law of liberty. As we saw before, this is the law that, that sets us free. Liberty is not found in doing what we please, but doing what we ought to do. That's how we set ourselves free. And if we abide by it, not being forgetful hearers, but effectual doers, we will be blessed in what we do. In other words, we will have all of God's resources to do what we intend to do. All the demands, all the pressures, all the expectations. For all of these, there is a, an equal and corresponding and adequate resource to be what, uh, what we're called to be.
uh, it appears then there are two options in life. We can either get angry or we can listen to the word. And uh, the, the question I would have to ask all of us, myself and you sitting here this morning, is simply the question that James raises. Are, are we doers of the word? We're, we're all hearers of the word. That's why you're here. And I listen to the word. But have we received it and are we doing it? Jesus said if you, if you come to the altar and you have something against your brother... And leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. Some of you are, are sitting here in, and uh, your marriages are being broken up and some of you have filed papers already and you're here hearing the word. You need to go back and be reconciled. So, well, that's too hard. That's going to hurt too much. Sure it hurts. Certainly it's going to cost. But that's what it means to be a doer of the word. Just to keep on working at your marriage, no matter how much hurt is being inflicted on you. you. You may not be able to do much about the other person, but there's a great deal you can do about yourself. You can endure. Or, or maybe this past week you've been giving your husband or wife a silent treatment because of some, something that's happened and you've gotten angry and and you've been cold and indifferent, well, you, you need to forgive. Jesus said so. Go back and be reconciled to your brother, and then bring your gift to the altar. Or perhaps there's someone uh, that, uh, uh, that wronged you, and you've been angry at them for, for years, bitter and resentful. You can't even think about them without getting stirred up in your mind. Jesus says, be reconciled. See, that's what it means to be a hearer of the word. Not to play games with God, not to justify and rationalize our disobedience, but to obey him in these small things of life, which in the end turn out to be very big things because they're the things that block our joy. And, and it's the hard circumstances of life that, put, their, that put, put the finger on these areas of disobedience in our life. They call our attention to. They call us to... Uh, to repentance. Now, verses 26 and 27, I think, are, are simply an illustration of, of what it means to obey and uh, to endure in the face of, uh, of our struggle and our, and our hurt. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be uh, religious, the word was used in the Greek world for those who were submitted to the to the will of the gods, and, and James and the other apostles picks it up and applies it to Christians, to be religious simply means to be submissive to God's will. If we think we're religious and yet we don't bridle our tongues, we've deceived our own heart, and our religion is worthless. So when things get tough, don't complain. That's all he's saying. Keep your mouth under control. Don't gripe. Don't complain. And secondly, don't feel sorry for yourself. Verse 27, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress. 
Widows and orphans in the ancient world had it worse than anyone else. Most widows had no place to go. They usually ended up walking the streets. They had to become prostitutes if they were to support themselves at all. At all. There, there was simply nothing like the present category of a working woman. They were on the streets. Or someone took care of them. And orphans had it even worse because there were no orphanages and normally they just became street urchins and they ran the streets and survived as best they could. They were much worse off than anyone else in the ancient world. And what James is saying is uh, when you are distressed, when you're pained, when you're hurting, when life is difficult, don't sit around and think about yourself and wait for somebody to call you and wish, oh my, why doesn't somebody minister to me? Don't give way to self-pity. Because if I, as I've said before, there's no end to that sort of thing. The more pity we get, the more we want. And then we just get bent out of shape because we don't get enough. The best therapy and the, and the mark of someone who's submissive to God is simply to go find someone who's much worse off than you are and minister to them. Take care of them. Call up someone that's hurting and comfort them. Paul says, blessed is the God of comfort. It comforts us in all of our distress, so we're able to comfort others. I say, I can't do that. I'm grieving too much. Well, then Paul is not telling us the truth. Blessed is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our distress so we can comfort others. So stop feeling for yourself. feeling sorry for yourself. Go find someone to serve. Jesus said, uh, again, if you lose yourself, you'll find yourself. If you try to find yourself, you'll lose yourself. That's, again, that odd inversion of values that adds so much meaning to life. Once we discover that, that real life and satisfaction comes from serving, then there's no end of the satisfaction we can receive. And then thirdly, he says, uh, we're to keep ourselves unstained by the world. Don't uh, complain. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Look for someone who is more oppressed, someone who's worse off. And third, don't let the world tar you with its brush. Don't let the world color you with its thinking. That's what he's saying. Don't let the, the, them stain you with their, with their ideas of, of reality because they're all wrong, mostly. They, they will tell you not to stick with your marriage. It isn't worth it. Find someone else, because you have the right to happiness. You owe it to yourself. James says, don't, don't give in to that kind of thinking. It's not so. One of my pet peeves these days is this tendency, even on the part of us Christians, to give clinical names to sin, and thus make them more noble, make it more noble. And one of the terms that uh, I, honestly, the next time somebody writes a book on it, I think I'm going to scream, is this idea of a midlife crisis. You know, I, I have men say to me, you know, I'm going through a midlife crisis. And I, I need space. I need self-actualization. <laughs> Self-realization. You know, I, I've got to get out and find myself. And then they always ennoble it by saying, you know, I am so miserable, I'm making my family miserable, and so I'm going to leave so you can be happy. And, of course, what their wife is saying, you, you know, I, if he would just come home and be a husband and, and a wife, or a 
father, I'd be, ha- I'd be happy. But no, the noble thing is to get out, see, so the other person can find themselves. And I, I've come to the place that I, that I say to men who say that to me, you know what that is? That's pure, unadulterated selfishness. That's all it is. You're, you're saying, I'm going to find myself and my wife and children can go to hell as far as I'm concerned. But I'm going to find myself. It's sin. And it's invading the church to an extent no one ever dreamed possible. And we need to put a stop to it. James says life's going to be difficult. You will struggle in your marriage. Most people I know do. Your children will cause you grief and pain because they're little fallen creatures. And uh, we'll hurt one another and we'll say spiteful, mean things to each other and we'll act in selfish ways. And, and the whole universe is conspiring against us. Paul says that's so. The world has fallen. It's, the whole thing is disintegrating. Can't expect life to hand us a good deal. Injustice and grief and suffering is the name of the game. I had a lady call me last night who was so upset, or yesterday afternoon, who was so upset over my column because I implied that life is difficult. And when I inquired about her life, I discovered that her life had been very, very difficult. But she didn't like to face the fact that it was. But, you know, that's reality. That's the way it is. Times will be tough. But we have all the resources of God that we can cling to and hold to and believe in to endure in spite of of adversity. And God promises that we will make it. (laughs) You'll make it. And not only will you survive and just get through somehow, but you'll get through triumphantly. Paul says we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So don't give up. Don't don't give out. Don't quit. As Peterson puts it, what matters is a long obedience in the right direction. Just keep plugging away at doing what God has called you to do. And you'll be blessed, James says, in your doing. Let's pray. Father, open our ears all of us to hear the truth, to receive it, and to do it. And we thank you that we have all that it takes in you to be all that you've you've asked us to be. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.